Welcome to Essential Ethics, your gateway to discussion about the ethics of medical treatment for sick children. This podcast is brought to you by the Children's Bioethics Centre at the Royal Children's Hospital, Melbourne. I am your host, John Massey, Clinical Lead of the Children's Bioethics Centre. This episode is part of our series called The Ethics Toolkit. When treating sick children and their families, clinicians are sometimes faced with challenging ethical situations. This series explores how bioethicists help clinicians address these challenges. In today's episode of The Ethics Toolkit, we move beyond the classic principles of biomedical ethics to explore other ways of considering ethical dilemmas. I'm joined by Dr. Ros McDougall, a senior lecturer in health ethics at the Melbourne School of Population and Global Health, University of Melbourne. Welcome, Ros. Thanks, John. Ros is a good friend of the Children's Bioethics Centre, having worked with us as a postdoctoral fellow, and has published a number of papers using ethical theory, away from our favoured model of principalism. Ros, in clinical bioethics, and especially here at the Children's Bioethics Centre, we rely very heavily on essentially one of the classic principles, by which we mean respect for autonomy or respect for persons, beneficence, doing good, non-maleficence, avoiding harm, and justice. But there are other ways to think about ethical problems. And if we consider that what we're trying to do is find what is right. So what I'd like to do is draw on some of your experience about some of the other ethical frameworks that uh, we could use? Yes, absolutely. So in the world of philosophical bioethics, we think about there being essentially three different answers to this question of what is right. So three fundamentally different ways of defining right conduct. So the first one is that the right thing to do is the thing with the best consequences. So this is consequentialism which makes a lot of intuitive sense. Consequences are really ethically important. It obviously seems important if we could save five lives rather than one life, then obviously we should save the five. But there are other ways of thinking about ethics too, um, and consequentialism isn't without its detractors. So it seems really important that we should choose five lives over one. But then when we start to think, well, hold on, should we take one healthy person's organs to save five unwell people, we start to think, actually, no, maybe there's more to it than consequences. So consequentialism thinks in terms of right conduct as based on the consequences of an act. But there are other ways of thinking about right conduct, which look at the act itself. So something like taking organs from someone, there seems something inherently wrong in that act, regardless of what we think of uh, positive consequences of saving the five. And so those that way of defining right conduct uh, is a more deontological approach. So it's looking at morality as within acts rather than just in consequences. And a deontological approach helps explain lots of our intuitions about things that just seem wrong. So we think, well, you shouldn't torture a child even to save a city. Some acts just seem wrong. And so if you're drawn to that kind of thinking, that's essentially a deontological approach to defining right conduct. 
And then the third approach is virtue theory. So this, you know, situates morality within a person's character. So the idea in virtue ethics is that the right thing to do is not the thing with the best consequences. It's not the thing um, that follows the rules, the deontological rules. The right thing to do is the thing that the virtuous person would do. So it might be the kind thing to do, the honest thing to do, the um, compassionate thing to do. So virtue theory uh, looks at morality as situated within character. How might we use some of those theories or, or think about them? And we might start with virtue ethics as, as a way of doing because it, it sounds all rather jolly, actually, that a good person is going to do good things, but it doesn't always work out that way. Before we just go down, I'd also like to think about, is there the opposite side of that? Is there sort of uh, vice? <laughs> vice to go ethics. Well, to go with the virtue, so we shouldn't do that because there's malice or greed or something else. And and I think that also when we're thinking about decisions in bioethics, we sometimes think about the reasons people do something. Why is that parent choosing to have uh, amputation and a prosthesis fitted rather than go down a reconstructive model for the leg? And it might be that their reasons are, you know might appear fatuous to us, but perhaps that doesn't matter, or it might appear the reasons seem really noble, but their outcome isn't necessarily as good either. So can you tell us a little bit more um, about that and how virtues might guide us? So one of the big challenges with virtue ethics is how do we define the virtues? And the kind of example that you're describing there, John, might be a case where doctors see a good parent as having a particular set of character traits, whereas parents might see a good parent as having a different set of character traits. So one of the really challenging aspects of virtue ethics is in defining the virtues. But I think one thing that I find powerful in virtue ethics is giving us a different way of thinking about problems. I think that we can very easily tend to think very consequentially about problems and sometimes taking a step back to think from one of these other perspectives can alert us to different types of ethical considerations that might be relevant. Um, but that challenge of defining the virtues is a really fundamental one. So obviously you're sticking with virtues and uh, and, and not avoiding vices so much. It's really thinking of virtues. So let's, let's give an example that I know that you've written about. And then it comes up every now and then from genetics. So it would be a, a couple planning a family. They're both deaf. They don't see deafness as a disability. It, it's a cultural difference. And there may be some advantages in the minds of two uh, deaf people. And so there's an inherited basis to the deafness in their family. And they want the doctors to select for deafness how did you use virtue ethics to think through that problem? I came to thinking about that problem from a virtue ethics perspective because I felt like a consequentialist perspective wasn't capturing what seemed like important elements of the problem. But immediately I came 
trying to think about that problem from a virtue ethics perspective, we don't have an existing well-described set of, okay, these are the parental virtues and here's how we should think about them. So the tradition of virtue ethics thinks in terms of a flourishing human life and tries to um, develop virtues based on that more generic notion of human flourishing. But there's a tradition in medical ethics, obviously, of thinking about a good doctor, thinking about virtue ethics in this kind of role-specific way. So what would a good doctor do and the uh, character traits of a good doctor? And I tried to start thinking, okay, can we think about those kind of really challenging selective reproduction decisions in terms of what a good parent would do? What If a good parent's aimed at the flourishing of the child, what um, character traits are conducive to the flourishing of the child? But it's interesting, when I wrote that paper was actually before I had kids of my own, so it was a very theoretical perspective on what the character traits of a good parent would be, and my feeling that the kind of telos or aim of parenthood was around the flourishing of the child. And I've since revised my view about that, in that now I think the goal of parenthood is actually around the flourishing of the family as a whole, um, which brings in a lot more challenging um, considerations about balancing different people's well-being. I'd like to think now in terms of the good parent has the character traits that are conducive to the flourishing of the family. Some of the words that you used or the virtues were acceptance, committedness. Yes. So I talked in that paper trying to start to articulate what the virtues of the good parent might be. And committedness was important because parenthood's a marathon, not a sprint. It's a long journey. And the idea that you're now nurturing a child to adulthood, so that notion of being committed. I talked about acceptance, the idea that children's characteristics change and that part of being a parent is being able to be accepting of children's different characteristics. And I also talked about the idea of what I somewhat clunkily termed future agent focus. So the idea that um, part of the aim of parenting is to nurture children to adulthood where they can be agents themselves. And I've had some interesting discussions, I think even here at the CBC conference with clinicians and ethicists about how that might not be the case for all children, that that's a particular, for some kids that might be part of the job of parenting, but, you know, for children with particular disabilities, that that notion of um, nurturing a child through a developmental journey to agency doesn't in fact capture all children or all parents' positions that help me develop my thinking around that too. It's interesting that you've changed your view because when we started this conversation, I thought, oh, actually, Roz, you might be a secret virtue ethicist <laughs> that, that you bring to your reflections. Was that true and no longer true? Well, two things, both in my um, thinking around parenthood reproductive ethics questions and then in a later project thinking about junior doctors, in both cases I hadn't started out to sort of take a virtue ethics approach as, okay, this is going to be the way I analyse this problem. But in both of those cases I just felt that the ethical considerations were best captured by a kind of virtue ethics lens. But when I was more of a baby philosopher, <laughs> I did have this feeling that part of your 
job was to kind of figure out which of these three theories you were going to be. You know, were you going to be a consequentialist? Were you going to be a deontologist? Were you going to be a virtue ethicist? And as I've thought more about lots of issues and had um, the experience of being very involved in ethics here at the Children's and in other places, I've sort of let go of that idea that you have to choose a theory. I think that all three of those positions have lots to offer and all three of those positions can help point to ethically important um, aspects of a case. So while the hardcore philosophers might see that kind of pluralist position as a bit inconsistent or incoherent. I'm very comfortable now in the kind of messy complexity of ethics in practice. I think that the role of those theoretical positions is to point us to the range of ethical considerations that are important. I don't think we have to pick a theory. So I think that's reflected in our ethics case consultations, where we really try to hear from a wide group of people. We're trying to hear various views which you could perceive as one of these theories in the context of one of these theories or in another way. And we perhaps come back to that. But I can see a weakness in the in the virtue ethics that you've highlighted, that there's the, the parental characteristics and the parents may not agree with your assessment of these are the virtues. And I know as a physician myself that there are some things that would be very hard to do, such as selecting for what most people, and I guess that's perhaps a societal norm, is a disability. Uh, And then you're putting those two together and you're going to then need another way to solve that problem. But at least you might have articulated some of the elements of the problem using that theory. Yep. Yep. That's exactly right. So for me, theory is a tool to help us think. And we can draw on different bits of theory to help us think in different ways. But I don't think that there's one theory that's going to be most usefully applied across all problems. I think particularly in the kind of ethics in practice model where we're thinking about discussion of ethical issues within a group with diverse perspectives, then that idea of one right way to think about a problem, I think, is not helpful. I mean, I think that's very reassuring because I... You know, starting to consider myself as a clinician ethicist, and I'm not trained in the high intellectual mode of thinking of philosophy or what I imagine it is, or they use words I don't understand and ideas. And so, in some sense, coming to ethics from a clinical basis it feels sometimes inadequate because I don't necessarily have the language of philosophy. Ros, I'm feeling reassured that that's okay to have some awareness of and understanding that as we're talking about today is enough. Yep, absolutely. You do not need a PhD in ethical theory to make good clinical ethics decisions, in my view. And I think if it makes you feel any better, John, I think that many ethicists, when they start working in that ethics in practice context, feel exactly the same in reverse. What can I do here when I don't have a clinical background, when I don't understand those details? So I think part of the power of a kind of collaborative clinical ethics model where you bring together that clinical expertise and and some people who know a bit about ethical theory, I think the power of bringing those two together is enormous. So we're here in the the workshop, if you like, and we're rustling around in the toolkit. And so I guess we've had a bit of a go at virtue ethics. So what about one of the other theories? Let's, let's talk about consequentialism. Where does that sit in 
the clinical arena, when we're thinking about an ethical dilemma, we've got a decision to make and how we might use that to do the work. Well, I think it's captured very much in those principles around beneficence and non-maleficence. They're essentially very consequentialist principles of, okay, what is the the good that can be done here? What What's the potential harm? I think consequentialism is also really useful at a policy level where you're trying to make decisions for groups of people um, and the policymakers love consequentialism, <laughs> that that's a very... Um, helpful way of thinking on a kind of population level about what the right thing to do is. But I think it's very intuitively compelling that consequences matter. And so we need to count consequences in our ethical decision making. I think the potential point of friction or disagreement is around do other things matter as well, is the only thing that we're trying to do, maximise the good consequences. So we do use consequentialism in perhaps a superficial sense of that balance of good and bad. When I was discussing recently uh, with a group, I got shouted down because I was I was thinking of a consequences for the individual, but I was told, no, when you're dealing with consequentialism, it's really everybody's happiness. And obviously here we are at Royal Children's in Melbourne, and I'm not so interested in what's happening in Somalia in relation to this case. I can't make everybody happy and there's layers to this. But is is that right, that, that consequentialism makes us have a broader thoughts about the act? Yes. So one of the critiques of consequentialism that people have made is that it doesn't allow for special relationships. So it doesn't allow for me to care more about your well-being because you're my colleague compared to someone that I, you know, another ethicist that I've never met somewhere else. So consequentialism wants everyone to count equally. Um, and there are various versions of consequentialism more or less sophisticated around that, but that has been a key critique of consequentialism, the idea that we should uh, care as much about the people um, who are close to us, like physically and emotionally, we should care as much about people that we can't see and don't know. So do you think when you started this, you mentioned your own family and the way that, you know, you've had a family and it's changed your perspective. And one of the things that we work hard on here is, and is in our toolkit, and we're going to have a session on that, is child and family-centered care. So do you think that that's a consequentialist approach, bringing the family in, or is that purely about the utility of the family to the child? Oh, that's interesting. I think... Yeah, child and family-centred care you could think about from different ethical perspectives. So there's certainly a kind of pragmatic consequentialist reason to do it in the sense that it's likely to have better outcomes for the child and for the family. So that would be the kind of consequentialist reason. But then there'd also be deontological reasons for child and family-centred care as well, in the sense that if you're taking perhaps a rights-based approach or an approach that's focused on autonomy, then they're more kind of deontological concepts that would also justify um, a concept like child and family-centred care. Because you can imagine situations in which perhaps overall treating all children using that concept might not have the maximum possible well-being across the population, but you still might think it's the right thing to do because of how you think about children's developing autonomy or parents' autonomy. 
Roz, you suggested that in clinical ethics, that the real work of consequentialism could be in policy. And then I think what another way of thinking about that is in population health. And some of the work we do at the Children's Bioethics Centre is develop policy, uh, thinking about justice or doing things appropriately and fairly for everybody who comes through the doors here. Is, Is that where you see the biggest strength of consequentialism? I don't like to think of particular theories as attached to particular types of problems. I think that usually most types of problems have various different ethical considerations and can potentially be useful areas to use different types of theoretical thinking. So I don't think that, you know, consequentialism, well, that belongs with public health. Or I think that whether it's a clinical ethics problem, a kind of one patient problem, or if it's a policy level problem within a hospital or even within a whole population, I think that there are useful tools from all those different theoretical approaches that we can apply. So you're very practical and you're very flexible. Very nimble, very nimble in my ethical analysis. So we haven't uh, spent much time with the deontological. It's a hard word to say. say. I sometimes think rule-based. I'm thinking of Immanuel Kant uh, writing in his German with the the candle burning. Um, Is this this what it is? And can you expound a bit more? Rules is a really helpful way to think about it, that when you're thinking from a deontological perspective, the right thing to do is the thing that follows the rules. And there are different ways that the rules might be filled out. So if you're a Kantian, for example, a key rule is that um, you shouldn't use people merely as a means, that people are an end in themselves and that that's a absolute. Um, so that's one, you might fill out the rules in a kind of Kantian way. If you're looking at children's rights, for example, that's another essentially deontological approach where you're saying that, okay, these are the rules and that the right thing to do is the thing that aligns with these rights. So I think, yeah, deontology is essentially this I think it's helpful to think about it as a set of absolute rules and then there's different ways that the rules might be filled out. But another way I think that's helpful to think about it is in terms of an act that there's morality in the act itself, not just in the consequences of the act. That's deep. So I'm going to reflect for a moment. Roz, the law is often what we might think of rule-based, and we have to work within the law, make our decisions, I guess assuming the law is based on sound moral principles. Uh, is, is, are they different, though? I mean, there's the law and there's the ontological, there's the rules. Are they the same? Are they different? No, I think the relationship between law and ethics is a really interesting one. And I think in some ways when we're working on really tricky ethical problems, sometimes the easy answer is, well, what does the law say? And often the law will say something, it'll give us some parameters within which to work, but it doesn't help us figure out what's the ethically justified thing to do. So I suppose I see the law as kind of delineating a sort of range of options. Obviously, you need to work within the law, but it doesn't do the hard ethical thinking for us. And I think in some ways I'm really relieved 
by that. And I think certainly with our English style case law based legal system, it, it gives us some flexibility, gives us the opportunities for new cases to test laws that aren't totally specific about situations and then bring in our thoughts based on theories, etc. One reflection I've had is about professionalism because that, you know, I know in my reading, ethics isn't professionalism, professionalism isn't ethics and professionalism is very rule-based. But if it goes bottom up, it's unethical. So would you like any ideas with regard to that relationship? And I've been working in this area for many years now, John, and to be honest, I don't fully understand what the conceptual relationship between professionalism and ethics is. It seems to me that lots of times people use the two concepts close by, meaning similar but slightly different things, because professionalism seems to capture things that I don't think of as particularly ethically controversial. So I don't think that the two overlap exactly, but then some failures of professionalism are also failures of ethics. But I don't see that professionalism does much useful ethics work for us. I don't think, unlike concepts um, like consequentialism or virtue or the principles or various other ethical concepts like zone of parental discretion, I can't see how professionalism helps us figure out problems in a way that those ethical concepts, I think, can help us figure out problems. Because I think a lot of older medical people, you know, their, their lessons in ethics were actually lessons in professionalism. And I think it's why it's a new field. And certainly why my impression is that the younger generation, uh, gee, I'm sounding old here, uh, and the students are really such wonderful people to work with because they've had some of the grounding in ethics. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that, you know, ethics has been around for a very long time. Professionalism's a newer player and trying to figure out what's the conceptual relationship. And maybe, you know, when push comes to shove, does it matter if we put it in the ethics bucket or in the professionalism bucket? Maybe not. So, Roz, what I'd like to do is round out. But I think what we've discovered is that for a clinician ethicist, it doesn't matter if you're not grounded in one particular highfalutin ethical theory that you stick to and you can't break from. And then that's actually because what we're doing is very pragmatic and we need to draw in different situations on lots of different theories. But they can all at different times with different weightings contribute to the answer, the problems. And perhaps, Ros, is it fair to say that's where or why we might rely on the principles? Because in those, we can see perhaps where they've come from. Yes, I think that's right, that there'll be, in any group of people talking about ethics, there'll be fundamental disagreements which might come down to these different ways of seeing right conduct. But with a framework like the principles or other clinical ethics kind of concepts, often there'll essentially be a point of consensus that if you're a, you can find consequentialist reasons um, to support the principles, you can find virtue-based reasons to support the principles, you can find um, deontological reasons to support the principles. So in some ways, tools like that can help us set aside those big philosophical disputes and move forward with a problem that's very 
practical and urgent and messy, um, we don't need to resolve those big kind of massive questions in ethical theory. Uh, I think that's really reassuring. And I think it's it's backfilling what we've been doing over the last few years seems to be just that. So what I want to finish with is a question that I think does round it out, but also could have been at the beginning. You know, why should we bother with ethical theory? Well, two reasons, really. I think thinking about ethical theory is really interesting and fun. So that's one good it's reason. An out, it's a, it's, it's a, like it's an intellect- end in itself. Absolutely. Intellectual chess. Um, and that that's an important reason too. I think that why it's useful in a context like a hospital is that it gives us language and structure to talk about considerations and it helps point to different types of considerations. We don't have to know lots of fancy pants philosophy, but if we know that there are different ways of understanding right conduct, then that can help point us to the full range of ethical issues that are going to be important in a specific practical case that we're working on. Well, thanks, Roz. It's been fascinating. And I actually feel that we have sharpened some of the tools in the ethical toolkit. Excellent. So I hope to have you back uh, sometime at Essential Ethics. Thanks, John. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the team at Essential Ethics. This podcast was made possible by the generous support of the Friends of the Children's Bioethics Centre Auxiliary. The podcast was recorded in the Creative Services Studio at the Royal Children's Hospital. It was produced in conjunction with Wavelength Creative. If you like the podcast, please leave us a review and tell your colleagues. If you would like to know more about the activities of the Children's Bioethics Centre at the Royal Children's Hospital, including our annual conference, visit our website at www.rch.org.au forward slash bioethics. Essential Ethics. Be inspired.